Thank you to our music team for leading us in worship this morning, and that is our prayer that God would show us Christ this morning, that we would see more of him. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 119, verses 129 to 136, with the theme of living in obedience to the law of God because it is wonderful and life-giving. Would you follow along with me? Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Would you bow in prayer with me? Our Heavenly Father, Whom have we in heaven but you? May it be that there is nothing on this earth that we desire besides you. We know that our heart and our flesh may fail, but you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for us, It is good to be near you. We have made you, the Lord God, our refuge, that we may tell of all your works. As the deer pants for the water, so our soul longs after you, O God. May we come hungering and thirsting after righteousness this morning, for you will fill the hungry with good things. May we see your power and your glory today. And may our souls be satisfied in you this morning, for your loving kindness is indeed better than life. May our mouths praise you with joyful lips. We seek your favor with all our heart. We pray that you'd be gracious to us according to your promise. And we come to you today in the name of our great high priest, who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God who we know is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and who alone is able to save us to the uttermost because he lives, ever making intercession for us. Lord, we know that the sacrifices you desire are a broken spirit and you will not despise a broken and a contrite heart. We come before your throne of grace this morning fully acknowledging our present sin towards you. 
For if we say we do not sin, or we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. For we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you have said that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And there are times when we have hated instructions and when our heart has despised reproof, we have not obeyed the voice of our teachers and we have not inclined our ear to them that have instructed us. Soften our hearts today, open our eyes that we may see and our ears that we may hear. We confess that we have set our affections and our desires on the things of this world instead of the things above, where indeed our treasure is, where Christ sits at your right hand. Grant that we may seek the things that are unseen rather than the things which are seen. We have known to do good, but we have not done it. We have been unfaithful stewards, and we have wasted resources that you have given us. And against you and you only have we sinned and done evil in your sight. We have not always obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in your ways that you have set before us, even though they are just and holy and good. In the multitudes of words that we have spoken, there has been much sin. We have spoken carelessly, foolishly, with crude words and joking, idle words, angry and hurtful words, words quickly spoken when we should have been listening. Woe to us, for we are a people of unclean lips. Lord, cleanse us from these iniquities, and we shall be clean. Lord, may we bring forth fruit in our lives in keeping with repentance, and we, may we never again return to our folly. May sin no longer have dominion over us, for we are not under law, but under grace, and may we work out our salvation with great fear and trembling. Thou, O Lord, are ready to give, forgive. You are good. You are rich in mercy to all that call upon you. You are God, full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, full of mercy and truth. We pray that you would blot out our transgressions for your name's sake and remember our sins no more. We have sinned, but we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours alone, but for all who would believe. We lift our hearts in gratitude and praise for our Savior, and we come today to your throne of grace that we may not only obtain mercy, but find grace to help in our time of need. Lord, bless our souls today, and let all those within us bless your holy name. Let our souls bless the Lord and forget not any of your benefits. Lord, we thank you today for the great provision in our lives, for work and the ability to work, for food on our tables and clothes on our bodies. We thank you for providing this church and for all who gather to worship here today. We thank you for the gracious invitation that you have given to all who are weary and heavy laden to come to you for rest and for the assurance that we can find rest in you and that if you come, if we come to you, you will not cast us out, that if we thirst, that we can come to you to drink. So we come this morning with thankful hearts that you will fill our souls today. We intercede today for the lost in the world. We pray that 
your gospel would advance to all nations and all peoples and that our church can continue to be an active participant in fulfilling this great commission. We thank you. We pray for those ruling over us in our land, the authorities that you have given us. We pray that they would rule well and righteously. We pray that they would not abuse the power and the authority that you have given them. And we pray that we would submit to them as we ought according to your word. We pray for your faithful ministers in this land, that there would be men in pulpits across the nation today who are faithfully preaching the word of truth. We pray that a true revival of hearts would come as the word is preached and your children respond in obedience to it. We pray today for the families and the marriages within our church. We pray that we would submit to each other in love, seeking the interests of others and not our own. We pray that we would live in obedience to the commands of Scripture in the relationships with others. We pray for those afflicted in our midst today that you would provide a measure of relief and comfort as they seek you in worship today. This affliction does not often seem light and momentary. So fix our eyes on the eternal weight of glory before us. We thank you and praise you today for the safe arrival of Jim and Deborah's grandson this week. And we pray for continued health and a full recovery for Courtney. To you alone be the glory. And we continue to pray for the safe and healthy arrival of Josh and Sherry's baby as well. Lord, now prepare our hearts to receive your word. May we submit to the truth therein as we respond in obedience to it. May we not quench the Holy Spirit in our midst today. This we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This morning we are continuing our long-term slow-motion study of the book of Philippians. And as I look back over my notes, I think we're in the seventh year of this book study. And it looks like we've got a few good years left. We ended our discussion last time at chapter 2, verse 11. After delving into Christ's example of humility wherein Paul is developing his theme that was stated in chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The message to the Philippian church has been to strive together in unity and in humility in their service to Christ and to each other. And as individual church members dedicate themselves to a life of humble obedience to Christ, the unity and love of the church as a whole will abound. Christ is the ultimate example of that humility as one who gave, his high, gave up the highest position to come to earth in the form of a servant and was obedient to the Father even to the point of death. So our passage under consideration this morning is chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but also, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Our passage begins with a conjunction, therefore. A conjunction is a connecting word. And here it connects the thoughts that have just been made with the imperative or the command, the verb that is about to come. The point that has just been made is that Christ is the ultimate example of humility. And Paul is saying, in light of this, or because of this, now consider this. Because this is true, consider this. Therefore, the truth of Christ coming to earth in the form of a servant, living a sinless life in obedience to the Father, offering his life as a sacrificial and substitutionary death on the cross, being raised to life, ascended to heaven, and exalted on high, has been established. And it's all to the glory of God the Father. This this is the Christ that grants us salvation, who loved us so much that he died for us and paid the ransom of our sin on the cross so that we might live. Our salvation depends on Christ alone. Therefore, this morning we will break this passage into several parts. The first part is the command, the verb, the imperative. Always look for the verb first. Tells you what to do. This is the central feature of the whole passage here. This occurs in verse 12. Work out your own salvation. So we'll talk about that. The second part is the conditions that we see attached to this imperative. One occurs before and one occurs after in the text. This tells us how and when to follow this command. The first condition is the time frame under consideration, which reads, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. So that's when. And the second condition occurs after the imperative. Work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and trembling. 
So the conditions of this command detail when they are to obey, to obey and how they are to obey. The third part of this passage details how this obedience is even possible. And it states that it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the fourth and final segment of this text indicates a specific illustration of how this command should be lived out. How the obedient will be viewed in this world and a word of Paul's joy in their obedience. So the theme or the passage, the thesis of this passage could be stated as work out your own salvation to God's good pleasure or for God's good pleasure. So to understand this passage, we need to understand one critical phrase very well. And it's a bit of an awkward and a difficult phrase, and that phrase is to work out your own salvation. Work out, specifically. So we can maybe start with what we know about salvation and work. We know that salvation is a gift from God and that no one is justified by their works. Romans 3.20, among many other verses, tells us this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. For those that have been in Sunday school classes, adult Sunday school classes, we've been discussing some of these things. Justification. The Bible doesn't contradict itself, so we start here. This is what we know. We know that work out your own salvation can't possibly mean that we should work at obtaining our salvation or obtaining our justification before God. So we need to know, have a look at what salvation actually is. What does Paul mean when he uses the word salvation? Perhaps I should allow a great voice from the past to speak. Charles Spurgeon spoke on this verse in 1871. And this is what he said about salvation. What a comprehensive word then is this. Salvation. It is a triumphant deliverance from the guilt of sin, from the dominion of it, from the curse of it, from the punishment of it, and ultimately from the very existence of it. Salvation is the death of sin, its burial, its annihilation, yea, the very obliteration of its memory. For thus saith the Lord, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. I wish I'd been there to hear the sermon. But three years before that, in 1868, he also spoke on this verse. And he further clarified salvation as having two parts. So these are the words of Spurgeon. Observe that there are two parts of our salvation. The first complete, the other is yet incomplete though guaranteed to be brought to perfection. The first part of our salvation consists of a work for us. The second, a work in us. The work for us is perfect. 
none can add thereunto. Jesus Christ, our Lord, has offered a complete atonement for all the offenses of his people. He took his people into union with himself, and by that union they become entitled to all the merit of his righteousness. They become partakers of his everlasting life and inheritors of his glory. Saints are therefore saved completely so far as substitutionary work is concerned. The second part of salvation consists of a work in us. That is the operation of God the Holy Ghost. As many as were redeemed by the blood of Jesus are also in due time renewed in the spirit of their minds. The Holy Ghost in regeneration descends into a man, creates in him a new nature. He does not destroy the old that remains still to be battled with and to be overcome. Though the nature which the Spirit implants is perfect in its kind and in its degree, yet it is not perfect in its development. It is a seed which needs to work itself out into a tree. It is an infant which requires to grow into the stature of a perfect man. The new nature has in it all the elements of entire perfection, but it needs to be expanded, to be brought out, to use the words of the text, wrought out with fear and trembling. God, having first worked in it, it becomes the business of the Christian life to work out the secret inner principle till it permeates the entire system, till it overcomes the old nature, till it, in fact, utterly destroys inbred corruption and reigns supreme in the man's every part, as it shall do when the Lord takes us to dwell with him forever. I wish I'd been there to hear that, sir. But we can read it now. The two parts of salvation, then, are a one-time declaration of standing, a position. We know this is called justification. And then the daily, lifelong living out of that declaration. This is sanctification. These are two sides of the same coin, one might say. One cannot be justified without being sanctified, for a declaration of righteousness also means that the Holy Spirit is indwelling and a new nature is given, and this will produce fruit. One cannot be sanctified or made holy without first having been justified or declared holy. Paul says, work out your own salvation. He's saying to the believers at Philippi to live out their salvation in obedience to God. He commands them to make their salvation fruitful with continuous and sustained effort. A commentator named Peter O'Brien very helpfully summarized it this way for me. Thus we conclude that work out your own salvation is an exhortation to common action, urging the Philippians to show forth the graces of Christ in their lives, to make their eternal salvation fruitful 
in the here and now as they fulfill their responsibilities to one another as well as to non-Christians. This life of continuous, intentional, sustained effort towards holy living is a frequent theme in Paul's letters. In chapter 3, he will speak of pressing on and straining forward to what lies ahead. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 and 14. Not that I have already obtained this or, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 14, 19, he speaks of a pursuit. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace, for mutual upbuilding. And perhaps his most well-known analogy is that of the Christian life being like a race, is described in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, as do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Discipline. Equally vivid is his description of the Christian life being like a fight in 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. As you can see, the command to work out your own salvation is consistent with the New Testament imperative, the New Testament command, that true Christian living requires a sustained, intentional, strenuous effort. It's like a fight, a race, disciplining your body. So you might be able to guess where my application questions are going to be later. The test, the text indicates that the effort or the work is regarding obedience. And in the context of the letter and the new covenant as a whole, it is obedience to God that is at stake. Paul is a representative as an apostle to God, of God to the church, and the scripture is the inerrant word of God, so his commands are God's commands to the church. And we know that it's regarding obedience because it ties back to the start of verse 12, the conditions uh, as you have always obeyed. And we'll talk about that soon. But this is moving on to the second part of our passage, the, the conditions. The conditions of this obedience or the conditions of this working out of our salvation. 
Verse 12 calls us, as I've just mentioned, calls the beloved to obey now in Paul's absence, just as they obeyed previously in Paul's presence. It shouldn't matter if Paul is there or not. He's saying you, you're to obey God. Paul had been gone for some time and is sitting in prison, as he writes, and he's received good reports about them and is encouraged by their faith. He recalls with great affection the times that he has spent with them, and it brings them great, him great joy to recall their obedience. And he's urging them to continue on, to not fall, to not move from that original state just because he is not there keeping watch over them. They are responsible to God. It made me think of the warning of a church that hadn't done this. Revelation 2, the church of Ephesus. There it says in verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Paul is instructing them not to get there, to continue on, to continue in obedience after he's gone. He's urging them to keep on obeying, to not fall, not get lax in their obedience, to keep on doing the works that they did while he was there. Notice the warning to the Ephesian church. This loss of obedience was due to their abandonment of their love for God. Obedience always stems from a great love for and a gratitude for our Savior. And this obedience is to be continuous from the point of salvation to the point of death. The second condition attached to this command is to work out your own salvation. It is to be done with fear and trembling. These two words consistently appear in, in most translations. Fear is the feeling of profound respect or awe for something. The sense of the word here is that it's used because of deep reverence for God. And the same word is translated reverence in Ephesians 5.21. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The word trembling is a noun that describes a physical reaction or response. The act of shaking or vibrating in small movements with the sense that this origin originates out of that sincere awe or loyalty. You're in the presence of someone much greater than yourself. Fear and trembling is the response of deep reverence and awe, sincere loyalty to a greater power. Bond servants in Ephesians 6 are told to serve their masters with this attitude. Bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord 
and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. This is the attitude in which the Christians at Philippi are instructed to work out their own salvation, to live out their own salvation. It was not to be taken lightly. It was to be out of a sincere sense of reverence and awe for a God who works in them to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this brings us to our third point. Namely, how is it even possible that they are to work out their salvation by living in obedience to God? How can we? In verse 13 gives us both the reason for fear and trembling. This sincere sense of awe and respect that being it is God himself who works in us and it gives us the mechanism by which this can happen. He says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is a bit of a complex and a cumbersome, albeit poetic and majestic phrase, to will and to work. What does it mean? Simply put, to will means that God provides us with the desire or the will to obey him. It is God who provides us with the desire. In the new covenant, it is God who gives us the desire to obey him. He puts, he gives us a new heart for him. And to work means that God provides us with the ability to obey not only the desire, but the ability. We are to live in a life of obedience, to work out our salvation with a continual sense of awe and reverence because it is God himself who is working in us to provide us with the desire and the ability to obey him. And this is the fundamental difference and distinction of the new covenant. That which God commands, he also enables. He provides us. He commands us to obey him. And then he provides us with the will and the ability to obey. Unlike the old covenant, where they were commanded to obey, to obey but they didn't have the ability to obey because they didn't have the Holy Spirit within them to empower them to consistently obey and to seek him consistently. Under the new covenant, we're given a new heart and a new spirit, one that loves God and seeks to obey him and seeks to please God. So our obedience is only possible because God works in us to give us the desire and the ability to obey him. And as we have that desire and ability, we work out, we live out our salvation 
out of a profound sense of gratitude for our Savior. So we move on to verse 14 and following. As Paul applies this principle specifically in this church. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith I am glad and rejoice with you all likewise you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul here is likely addressing a specific aspect of the church which needed some correction. It appears that there were some complainers and some grumblers in the church. I'm glad that doesn't happen anymore. His command then as they were to work out their salvation was that they specifically needed to stop complaining, questioning, or grumbling. They were to do all things without grumbling or complaint. All things, not just a few things, all things. They may have been doing what they were supposed to be doing, but they weren't doing it willingly or with a pure heart. They needed to correct this behavior so that they could be blameless and innocent before God and before man. They were to shine as lights in the world around them without blemish in a crooked and perverse or twisted generation. They were to hold fast to the word of life, to the very gospel that they had, been, they had trusted in but to which they had not been living up to. This was a gentle word of correction for the church. A time to get back to the basics of their salvation. A time to reflect on the goodness and the love of God for them. And a time to recognize that once again their salvation was entirely due to God and entirely for his good pleasure. Paul was encouraging them in this way so that he too could rejoice in their obedience and in the fruit of his efforts. The message then was to faithfully and obediently live out the salvation that God himself had granted for his good pleasure. God himself was working in their lives to give them the ability and the desire to obey. This obedience was to be conducted in a manner fitting of the gift and in deep reverence and awe of the giver with fear and trembling. This obedience specifically would be displayed as contented lives, lives free of grumbling or complaining so that their lives would be blameless and innocent and shining as lights in a crooked and perverse, twisted generation. 
How then could we possibly apply this today? In the here and now at Elk Point Baptist Church, in our homes, in our lives. Well, I think it's pretty applicable. I think the basic command given to them is applicable to us as well. We also are to live out our lives with fear and trembling. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We also are to trust God to provide the desire and the ability to obey Him. We also are to shine as lights in this world, which we know is crooked and perverse. How, how are we going to do this? Well, I have some questions that we can ask ourselves. I have a lot of questions. You don't have to answer them all, but uh, we might want to answer a few in your own head. First of all, most fundamentally, most importantly, are we working at our salvation or are we working out our salvation? Are we working to gain our salvation or are we living out the salvation that we have been granted by a great and glorious God through the work of Christ on the cross? We've been discussing these issues in our Sunday school classes. This passage applies to believers, those who have already repented of their sins and trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. If you haven't done that yet, I would urge you to submit to the Holy Spirit today and become a child of God. We cannot work out our salvation if Christ has not done his work first in us. Second, are you working out your salvation? Are we living in obedience to the commands of Christ and Scripture? Are you living out what you have received? Do you see growth in your own spiritual life? Do you seek holiness? Are you working at it? Is it an intentional, continual, sustained effort? Or are you just playing around? Is it work? Are you fighting the good fight of the faith? Are you running the race? Are you beating your body into submission for Christ? Are you responding in obedience to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life when you are convicted of sin or in an area you, you know you need to improve in? Or do you quench the Holy Spirit and say, not now, maybe later? Do you drown out the knowledge that you need to stop doing something or start doing something else? Are you actively studying scripture? Are you actively in fellowship with others? Are you actively submitting your soul to good teaching so that you know how to live and how to obey? Third, are you working out your salvation 
with fear and trembling? Do you awake each morning thankful and grateful for the gift that you have been given? Do you actively seek to honor the gift and the giver of that gift by intentionally living in obedience, knowing that it is God himself who has given you the ability and the desire to do so? Knowing that without this gift, you would have no chance on your own. Do you revere God? Or is your faith something you just take casually? Is it just a Sunday morning kind of a faith? Or is it the thing that defines who you are? Do you have that fear and trembling? Examining yourself to see whether you're doing all that you can do, whether you are obeying all that you know how to obey. Fourth, are you shining as a light in the world? Does this face that you confess make you visibly different from those in the world around you? that's what a light is. Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? Are you a person marked by love, marked by joy, marked by peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? These things are pretty rare in this world. This is a crooked and twisted generation. And these things are not very evident in our society. Is your speech marked by thanksgiving or is it full of filthiness, crude talk, foolish talk, joking? Have you put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander and malice from your life? Do you let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven? Perhaps we're sometimes afraid to stand out in a crowd, to stand up for the truth, to stand up for the helpless and the vulnerable. Maybe just maybe, this specific command given to the Philippian church might apply specifically to some of us here today. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Do we grudgingly, begrudgingly obey and do what we know we are supposed to do? Or do we do it with a joyful heart, knowing that our, be our obedience delights our God and Heavenly Father. Is our light shining as bright as it could be? Or is it kind of on low? In closing, there are three key truths, I think, that we can glean from this passage and take home. True salvation 
is always lived out in obedience. The Christian life involves a continual, sustained, and strenuous effort. It is a race, it is a fight, it is a battle that requires intentional and dedicated action. True salvation is always accompanied by a desire to obey God and the power to obey God. One who confesses but does not obey is a false Christian. 1 John 2, 3-6 is a critical passage to keep in mind. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. True salvation is always lived out in obedience. But we can always improve on our obedience. Our, our attitude in obedience is to be one of fear and trembling. We should never lose the sense of awe and reverence for God who would choose to save us. And then grant us the ability and the desire to obey him. Our salvation and our Christian walk is never to be taken lightly. It is not a trivial matter that can be compartmentalized into one part of our life. I'm going to go back to the late 1600s to Matthew Henry for a moment. He offers these words. We must not only work at our salvation by doing something now and then about it, but we must work out our salvation by doing all that is to be done and persevering therein to the end. Salvation is the great thing we should mind and set our hearts upon, and we cannot attain salvation without the uttermost care and diligence. He adds, with fear and trembling, that is, with great care and circumspection, trembling for fear lest you miscarry and come short. Be careful to do everything in religion in the best manner and fear, lest under all your advantages you should do, you should so much as seem to come short. End quote. If we live in fear and trembling of a great and mighty God who saved us, we will shine as lights in a very dark world. We would do well to remember the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes as we remember that every deed will be judged. At the end of Ecclesiastes, he puts it all together. He's examined everything in life. And he says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. A third truth that we can't forget is that our obedience and indeed our very salvation is for God's good pleasure. 
God is ultimately pleased and is glorified when his children live in obedience to him. This is how we glorify God. God takes delight in his children living in awe and reverence of who he is. So this passage brings to a close a portion of the letter that begins in chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. This is demonstrated by unity in the gospel, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel in spite of opposition and suffering. Our lives are to be characterized by humility as we look to the ultimate example of humility in Christ himself. Our salvation is to be lived out, worked out in obedience to Christ day by day and a continuous and sustained effort with the overarching attitude of fear and trembling, great awe and reverence for a God who would work in us through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross to accomplish our salvation. May we never lose that gratitude for God, to God, for transferring us from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. May we also never forget that it is God who grants us the desire and the ability to obey him as we live out each day. And may we grant him the pleasure of our obedience. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we pray today that we would examine afresh our walk with you to see if we are showing forth the graces of Christ in our life. Help us to run the race with diligence, to fight the good fight of faith, to train our minds and our bodies in obedience to you, and to bring you glory, honor, and great pleasure as you enable us with a desire and the ability to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. In Jesus' name, amen.